First, let me mention that while we're a medical device, FDA cleared class two, which means we're a real thermometer and that's not easy to get. Starting the business, uh, it grew out of another business, which is a web portal and uh, wireless sensors. We used to track people's locations throughout hospitals and healthcare. And we did that with Nurse Call. And I mentioned Bill Gates because he wanted sort of a uh, comfort system in his uh, home. We did it in semiconductor. So we wind up in a hospital show, even after all the Nurse Call stuff. And they said, you know, we're having a hospital acquired infection problem. And so samples will, and it's kind of involved, but you know, their samples will be labile or, uh, or, or ruined by a uh, change in temperature. We are not telling you to quit your job. Here at Off The Clock, the Healthcare Entrepreneurs Podcast, we are teaching you exactly how to gain your freedom as a healthcare professional in places that school never taught you. This is OTC University, and class is in session. Welcome to another edition of Off the Clock, the Healthcare Entrepreneur Podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, Mr. Carl Bourne Jr., and I'm joined by my main man, Mr. Paulo Ching. Paul, say what's up to the people. Yo, what up, what up, what up? I'm glad to be here. All right, so you guys know we love to bring you special guests. This week is no exception, and I'm very excited for this episode because we have not had anyone come onto the podcast yet to school us on this area of healthcare. So looking forward to it. And I just want to go ahead without further ado, introduce our guest for today. We have Mr. Rick Heller here with us. Rick, how you feeling? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I am well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Rick, we like to be respectful of your time. We know you're, you're a busy individual, so we just want to go ahead and dive right into it. So right off the bat, you know, we know you, you have your own business, you know, you created Wello, but before we even dive into all of that, tell us, how did you even get into the field of healthcare? I think like most people I've met in healthcare, uh, we're in this for both personal, you know, personal kind of drives professional. So my background is biomedical engineering and, uh, you know, which is everything from device and instruments, uh, not necessarily uh, medical, but had medical applications going back to the 90s where we had uh, a system that we installed in Bill Gates' house that could tell where people are. And as you're uh, probably familiar in healthcare, these things called nurse call uh, is the thing where the pillow speaker uh, you know, tells the nurse that, you know, help, and they come in, and then they uh, manipulate the lights so that the lights over the door don't have the call anymore. And that whole process we automated by when they walk into the room, uh, we know where they are, the, the system does, and it turns off the lights, it turns on the lights, all those things, and uh, brought most of nurse call wireless. So uh, that was, uh, uh, and what we had done in the Gates house is we were just trying to track people who came in so that they could have services. And believe it or not, it was so you could have the air conditioning that on survey, 
uh, in his uh, you know beautiful residence. Uh, on survey, you would give you know what temperature you liked, what music you liked, what the wall paintings are that you liked. And this is back in the day before we had all these uh, LCD screens and all. So they kind of went from the back of the wall and they sort of uh, put up the uh, screen like some of those uh, some of those old giant TVs. Uh, the way they work. And so you'd walk in if you like Gauguin or you, you, know, you like whatever, and then you get the music you like. So it was quite a, uh, uh, quite an interesting job to do that. And they, you know, that was when uh, the happy couple got married. And uh, so anyway, that kind of exposure uh, brought us directly into healthcare because that was the perfect example. And then semiconductor where we're tracking these very precious uh, wafer, they call them wafer boats, but they're just sort of like Tupperware with uh, these little round CD looking things. In them. Uh, and from there, healthcare became, uh, you know, my running became a passion. And uh, obviously, with that comes health because you're always worried you're not going to be doing that soon. And, you know, after, you know, missing uh, racquetball games because my partners begged out and it was just unreliable. I just went for solo things. And uh, that that got me on this road. And uh, before long, uh, it wasn't too long ago that Ebola was a uh, issue. And before that, <clears throat> just uh, hospital-acquired infection. So we were helping uh, where things are stored and transported and still in use in uh, a thousand or so hospitals throughout the country. Every place in the refrigeration and the uh, in the bioassays, everything is monitored for temperature uh, where we are, and just with these little sensors, wireless sensors. So all that sort of uh, came together as a uh, great interest and passion and help. I love, um, you know, that the way you've explained it almost sounds like this isn't just, you know, some random passion project that you have, but it more so intertwines with like what you want daily life to be like and the prevention of a lot of things that could be prevented. Right. Um, that's why I especially love, cause like Carl mentioned, we've never had anybody like you on the podcast before. So really, really looking forward to it. I want to jump in by asking you specifically about where did this need to, you know, be able to find a cure for the spread of viruses start for you and what really sparked that um, into you creating it into this, you know, company that's doing so well? Um, well, uh, you know, my background was, about, among other things, was math. And uh, in uh, my elementary school, I always did posters on diseases. And naturally, you want a cure for disease. And it, if you take math and you combine it with disease, you see that disease is unnecessary. You know, if, if you do the math in, in the right way, and you shut it down. So um, there's a, a book you probably heard of called The Emperor of All Maladies. It's by a guy named uh, Siddhartha uh, Mukherjee. And he's a brilliant guy, wonderful guy, an immunologist. And he, I was at a uh, uh, sort of a book thing, small group, and uh, somebody said, and this was a professor who got up just at the college, at Southern Methodist University, he said, when is the cure for cancer going to be here? And, uh, and uh, Dr. Mukherjee sort of looked out into 
the audience a little higher above our heads. And he says, there's already a cure. And this inspired me as I was listening on. And he says, prevention is the cure. So, you know, if you, if you think about all the complexity of disease and, and treatment as, as you engage, and, uh, you know, how to get to stuff from the outside, because we don't want to, you know, get, get uh, you know, we don't want to breach the skin or anything. You realize that a lot can be done uh, well before these uh, things happen or even obviously after injury. And uh, it just takes, you know, patience and, and fortitude and uh, the patient will need to get well, too. So uh, prevention is the uh, number one thing in our scope. And we know and saw this back in Ebola and way before Ebola, that uh, if we could cut off the spread, we could actually, and I know this sounds uh, grand, but it is very true, we could actually end the flu. And the flu is insidious. It is the top 10 killers until COVID, the only communicable disease. And you may count pneumonia, but often pneumonia is triggered by the flu. And uh, uh, top 10 killers of Americans. So um, the reason it keeps going is because of our hygiene and our misunderstanding about a lot of these things. Now, doctors know how to treat it, but obviously there's no cure. You know, you have to let it run its course, keep the patient alive. You know, that's their job. So, uh, <clears throat> so the vaccine, you know, now, you know, vaccine is part of our daily news. Uh, the vaccine for flu is, is not good. It's atrocious, in fact. You know, it's 60, 70%. You're kind of assured, though, you'll get the flu. It won't be that bad. And that, that's a good thing. Uh, but it's still, uh, it, last year, it had really zero benefit. It was a flip of the coin as to whether you get help. But, oh, I'm, I want to add, though, before I forget about this, it was magical. And we could see this on our uh, data. We'll talk about it later. But uh, you know, we do about 70,000 people a day, uh, scan them for their body temperature and uh, looking, obviously, for elevated body temperature, which would be a contagious person or uh, otherwise infected person. And so what we observed from these, uh, uh, that contagiousness was a function of some very low temperatures that we would probably kind of think, oh, I'll muscle through the day, you know, and, and get by, but they were contagious. Uh, contagiousness and the CDC didn't say that they were contagious and uh, you know anywhere on Google didn't say that that level it was contagious uh, and what we saw was that the spreading occurred down at you know Fahrenheit 99.2 and uh, if you were older it would be 98.6 that the famous number we can talk about so uh, so all of a sudden contagiousness is a big deal and infection to us as individuals isn't really, you know, we're, we're getting by that day. You know, it may not be our best, but we'll get work done. Uh, anyway, we're running around spreading, uh, spreading the uh, bad stuff. So uh, with the prevention of flu, we can really stop what's called the drift. And it's the drift that we have to create vaccines every year. And it's not, you know, one antigen in there. It's not two. You know, they call it trivalent, all these sophisticated things. They're just throwing spaghetti, if you will, at the wall, uh, a very educated way, I'm sure, a very well-studied uh, way, and just hoping, you know, you hit it right. And last year, did not hit right. Oh, I know what I want to say. So, shelter in place. 
took our numbers uh, in uh, North America, it took our numbers down 95% in that very first week for flu. And that's because it really does spread when you're closer, six feet, five feet, whatever it is, it's, that's when it spreads. And then when we started to uh, you know, go into lockdown or whatever we call it and stay at home, uh, it didn't spread. But COVID, much more infectious at this time, that spread and that spread easily, you know, grocery stores, particularly restaurants, bars, things like that. So speaking of uh, COVID, <laughs> and uh, since we're, we're, we're already on the topic of infectious diseases and, you know, contagious illnesses, I want to ask you, what would you say for, and this, this is for people, you know, who may be listening, because we do have listeners that are not in healthcare, so they're not, you know, very familiar with a lot of terminology and things like that. But just from a basis of spreading, what would you say are the most common ways that infections spread, like in the workplace? Well, uh, workplace, you know, we're, we're in so many uh, places now taking temperatures where we are learning a lot. Uh, on the manufacturing floor, you know, people just the, the, it's, just imagine a pool table, if you will, and you know people are sort of bumping up into each other's spaces. As a uh, gentleman from Sidrap says, the doctor there, uh, he says, you know, we're just breathing other people's air. So that gives you a, a visual, you know, just try not to breathe each other's air. So what we're doing with the masks has a, a true benefit, particularly, and you know, this is this is fact, uh, particularly for sick people. You know, when you're sick, and we'll maybe talk about asymptomatic spread and how we see that. So when you're sick, you're exhaling this abundance of virus. And the symptoms and the fever and the spread all sort of come together at the same time. And it's almost impossible to find a better tell uh, for disease, for contagiousness than fever. So while this occurs, um, the, the spread in the workplace is going to come from, uh, you know, standing up over a cubicle. We have uh, some really cool cubicles. We put up glass in between, uh, and but get, you know, getting up and instead of talking at the glass, we're going to talk over them. Well, that's going to uh, spill a load of uh, virus. Then uh, the other thing that is very interesting. And the very few environments that humidify turn out to be uh, the place where spread is the least. And, you know, we think about humidity and moisture as being sort of buggy in Germany and all that. But there is nothing that spreads virus more than a dry environment. And dry comes from cold, outdoor cold, and it comes from uh, uh, the uh, emission, you know, your, your exhale. And all of that virus then desiccates, it dries out. It's like freeze-drying something. And so in that freeze-drying moment, you know, we're hot as humans. We're uh, very moist in our lungs, right? I mean, 100% saturated air, unless you're dehydrated. And so when this hits that, uh, that room temperature, dry air, that virus is very much alive. For the most part, when you do that into a Moist environment, it's dead on arrival. I mean, the minute you exhale that, you know, 99.9% .9 of that stuff is perishable. 
but in a dry environment it's not and then it's able to ignore gravity and it's not magic it just it's like a feather you know it's a protein feathers of proteins and, you know so so it is and it's warm too came from our bodies and so it just sort of lifts up and then we have this sort of like a cloud uh, all over the place that so we're coming in we're moving a few miles per hour and sharing our air so in the workplace uh, it's almost unavoidable uh, but to the extent that you can you know the uh, uh, you know wearing a mask is a great idea we require that in our offices particularly unless you're sitting at your desk people are going to be able to take off their masks uh, and that's what we've seen we've seen the lower lowest incidences in the places that pay attention and uh, prevent the spread Naturally, you know, I think on the back end of that question, then people start to wonder, um, you know, when it comes to like, you know, the so-called super spreaders, right? Um, One, because I promise you, I know like there's people listening and they're thinking, all right, but how do I even know what they look like? What, What am I supposed to be looking out for? So, you know, how do we go about identifying, you know, who could be a super spreader? And then what precautions does somebody need to take? Um, you know, besides just getting tested. Okay, that's, you know, that is a great area of concern because it it mixes in, you know, science as we go along gets better, you know, medicine gets better. And then all of a sudden we get hit by this thing and, you know, people are, you know, everybody's an armchair scientist and, you know, we all do it to some degree, but, you know, there's 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 some there's some stuff that's worth knowing and yet, when it comes to that kind of uh, thinking, you know, wonder, uh, it's, it's not obvious and the science is getting muddled, not refined as it goes along. And then there may be political uh, issues there, uh, which are, you know, maddening uh, that, you know, we seem to have opinions that just breathe because, you know, we don't want to wear a mask or, you know, we, or we do, you know, we gotta, everybody's got to wear a mask. So, um, what happens is the uh, super spreader doesn't exist in a sense. A uh, super spreader is a contagious person, right? So, and this is not written on enough, but I've seen a couple of articles about it in some papers. Uh, super spreading is an event. And so it's a person who's contagious going into a place with a lot of people. And, you know, <clears throat> you've all spent time in bars. They turn up the music in bars, and that gets us closer, you know, no matter uh, what the event is. If you want to talk, you're going to do that. You know, if you're a little bit, uh, you know, if you're enjoying yourself enough, you're going to uh, let loose. It might sing. That is, a, you know, propelling a lot of that stuff. So that's where these super spreader events come from. And then naturally, these indoor concerts uh, it just takes one person and the and the radius of spread. You see the airplane studies and stuff like that. But the radius of spread can be, you know, 50 feet, 100 feet. And it's under the right conditions. And we saw that in Korea. You know, Korea has these, uh, I, I call them cults. But, and, and, you know, they just, they have huge, huge groups. You know, typically married couples, uh, if you will, a guru. Um, you know, sort of a messianic type, and they congregate in the thousands. And that was the big spread in Korea, who is very careful about this stuff. 
But that one event in, uh, I think it was June, just tore into uh, Seoul, Korea, which is you know, 15 million people. So, um, so anyway, sorry to make, a, uh, uh, to make that long, but uh, su super spreaders are just contagious people. So then the question is, is who is contagious? And as I was saying before, these low, uh, low temperature, you know, we use these things on the head, these uh, 99.2 we see in healthy people, they're contagious. And if we drew blood from them, we would see that they were in a fevered state. So to say that fever is 100.4 when they're 99.2, and we could uh, get a blood sample and see white blood cells, and we could see interleukin uh, uh, proteins, they are in fact contagious. And so the super spreader now is not identifiable unless they use one of our instruments and uh, are able to screen them. At that point, uh, they just don't enter the building and hopefully don't infect. So that's the preventative side of uh, identifying super spreaders. So we as individuals don't have to. Yeah. Have you noticed going up to people and saying, uh, or the, they'll say to you, yeah, you hear, they'll hear you cough. And I have, a, I have a persistent cough that's been going on. And, uh, and then they start saying, so what did you do this weekend? <laughs> They're sort of getting into your business, and uh, which is fine, you know, and then, People are like myself, I'm offering up, you know, I have this persistent cough. And uh, I just had, by the way, a COVID test last week. First time I ever did that just for interest and uh, obviously negative. So, so anyway, it, it just becomes a new social thing. It's like, you know, finding out about people's business just to see if they might be, uh, uh, it might be contagious. Yeah. So Rick, you, you alluded to this earlier and i, I want to ask you your your thoughts on it you, you know you mentioned the the issue with asymptomatic people and so i want to ask you like what are your opinions on people saying that asymptomatic people are the problem okay so um we're not seeing it we think we're seeing it but we're not seeing it uh you know take the the famous one is the Rose Garden, I forget, it was some the Supreme Court lady or something. And that spread, I think, to 10 or 15 people. But it was the Rose Garden, it was outdoors. But if you go look at the photography, you'll see that they were having lots of functions indoors and all glad handing and all that, no masks whatsoever. And so that thing spread like crazy. Now we'll never know because uh, you know, transparency issues. We'll never know who that super spreader is. But my bet is, is that they know. Uh, and they were, you know, you're going to go see the president and all these famous people. You know, you're a little famous. You know, you just want to show up. So you're going to be compelled to go. And same thing with concerts, uh, flying. I mean, you bought a ticket. You want to go see so-and-so. And uh, you're going to make that flight. And so you're going to you know, take uh, over-the-counter medicines or whatever it takes to get on there uh, asymptomatic. So uh, it's, it, it is really a choice, I think, that people make uh, to you know, get their business done while uh, uh, likely infecting other people. So asymptomatic uh, let me give you one example, and I asked permission for this. So our, uh, somebody who works for us uh, just was uh, about two or three weeks ago, left the office to work from home. 
went on a trip to go to a wedding. And the pretty much the beginning of the story was is she was not well. She felt headache, no fever. And she uh, still went off to the wedding, flew. Uh, she's a very responsible person and told everybody at the wedding about this, was tested two, twice. She was negative both times. So then, you know, we're talking because she's working actually from uh, Florida. Uh, and <clears throat> lo and behold, she, uh, she's almost over whatever it is that she had that she was negative for. And then she comes home and has, a, I think, a test in Florida at the very end and has a positive. So all that time she was dealing with COVID. So the question I want to know is, is who got it? She was in the office. We have one person in the office who also got COVID, but uh, an accountant. And he said, you know, I don't think it could be her. I wasn't, you know, with her at that time. Um, and so uh, I've been, you know, we relocated him. So he's, uh, you know, not set up to cook and all that stuff. So he says, you know, I go to a lot of restaurants. It's probably not good behavior, but uh, that's where I think I got it. So then I asked her, Okay, what about your fiance? They, you know, cohabit. And no, he didn't get it. So uh, nobody else in the office got it who was around her at that time. Nobody at the wedding got it. So here's an asymptomatic person, no fever. Uh, and she's, she's trained. Uh, she trains people as well as uh, we train her about taking temperatures. So she, you know, is completely normal temperature, no spread. So that's an anecdote and uh, maybe one data point. And it counts for me because uh, I don't get a lot of these stories. Employers are, uh, are more and more, they're sharing their stories. But anyway, asymptomatics, I don't believe are, are, are spreading. Uh, people who, who look at the thermometer and see 99.9 and say, you know, on the internet, oh, well, I don't have, uh, I don't have a fever. The CDC says I don't have a fever. Well, they're probably spreaders and they're thinking wrong. So, so much for asymptomatics. That's true. Um, you know, it just reminds me. Like, what was that? Do you buy that? I mean, is that, well, is that your experience? You're with people? You know, I, I was thinking back to like when you know, this whole COVID thing first started, um, or at least when we, the general public, um, finally got hang of it. And I just remember how it started in my town. Um, you know, it was simply that there was this um, recording artist that was doing a tour of the United States. And, um, you know, it had started in a lot of places, but there were no reported cases where I live. You know, after she left, they were able to link back to that artist and say, like, all those people that went to that concert um, I think it was like 80 something percent of them all tested positive, you know, cause she did a meet and greet right after. And that's like how it kind of started to go through. So even to the point now where it's like, I know somebody who um, in their family, they have an asymptomatic, two asymptomatic people who experience absolutely no things, but then another person, you know, was on a vent um, for a few weeks. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's just one big, like, you can never really know, you know, what to go about it. And, you know, I even have a question kind of following up that you mentioned, you know, according to the CDC, 99.9, you don't have a fever. But, um, and I ask this because like, I want to link it back to, you know, what your company's based on. And then two, 
um, what people need to be thinking about on an individual level. I, I personally have a problem when it comes to like corporate culture as a whole, where, you know, the bottom line is placed on, we need to make our money. And so if you're under hundred degrees, come on into work. But, you know, I know for certain people, just your 99.9 might not be the same as my 99.9. I could be at 99.9 and feel like the world is burning versus somebody else could be right at that edge. So what, what would you say in your professional opinion is like the acceptable limit for somebody, you know, when they go to get their temp checked and say, okay, I'm at 99 flat. Maybe this is not a thing for me. Or how do people need to start advocating for themselves to stand out and not expose themselves, you know? Because I know there's a lot of people that they're testing right at the edge and they're getting sick simply because that was the rule. You know, under 100, you come to work. Yeah, well, I, I can assure you that at least our customers and clients are not uh, taking that position anymore. They're uh, erring on the side of caution. So they'll send people home in a heartbeat. I feel bad uh, because in some cases, and not many, but in some cases they're just sending them home and you know they're not getting a day's wage. And that, that becomes a disincentive to uh, wanting to you know, get screened. So it's always good if they, uh, if they pay their employees you know, sick leave or whatever. So the, um, the employers are, uh, as I say, erring on the side of caution. They'll send them home like that. Um, we just had an outbreak with one of our clients, and we went and looked at it, and we saw the three people, and they were all at 99, 99.2, and uh, one was at 99.6. Uh, so uh, this became a clump. It shut down the entire manufacturing facility. This is uh, our contract manufacturer. We now manufacture uh, our own. So uh, that was 40 people. And I just got word today that it had gone up to 50 people. And one of the uh, key people is in the hospital now. So they, they get the seriousness of this. Uh, it used to be summer camps would be very interested in uh, screening people because summer camps get shut down. Uh, if the flu, which is rare in the summer, but in summer camps, it really can, you know, move quickly through, uh, through that kind of environment if it does show up. And, uh, and summer camps, if you can just imagine, you know, mom and dad going on, you know, a cruise, they're getting, they're sending their child to summer camp because they're going somewhere. Well, uh, that's a horrible situation for the summer camp because they got to close. So what do they do with their children? They're going to disrupt uh, people's uh, leisure. Uh, anyway, so I guess uh, your, your question was about, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I lost that. We were talking about. Um, How do you, you know, for, you gave a perfect example, right? You had the three people, 99, 99.2, 99.6. And that led to, you know, that result. So how do people or how do companies identify, you know, besides getting your product, right? How do people identify like the limit for what should be like, okay, this is where people start coming in and their temperatures at this point, maybe they should go home. Okay. So here's a couple of adders and subtractors to temperature. Uh, and we have a artificial intelligence Thing. You actually walk up to this thing, you see your face like it was a mirror. 
So, you know, you go this way, that way, and it gets you to line up your eyes. And the way that our eyes are in distance, it's sort of virtual, or it is virtual, uh, gets you at this perfect distance from the device. And then instead of reading the forehead or other parts, we read this thing called the canthus. I know about that. It's uh, the medial canthus or inner canthus. People even argue about what it's called. But it's basically your tear ducts. And this is the warmest part of your face on the, uh, uh, the front side. So um, once we take that temperature, here's, the, uh, here's all the adjustments. And this is equivalent to taking an oral temperature. We're adjusted uh, perfectly to oral temperature. Uh, women are uh, approximately 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit higher. And right now, you know, my wife and I are having thermostat wars. That doesn't exactly compute because, you know, actually she's, she is now hotter than I am, so that does make sense. But in the summer, she's colder than I am. Uh, but the point is, is that women will be normally higher by about 0.3. And that's a lot uh, when you're trying to find like a 99.5 cutoff. Then uh, up to the age of, uh, it's pretty much the same all the way up to the age of about 50, 55. And then we start getting colder. So we use the phrase, older is colder. Uh, so when you get to be 65, your well area is the highest in an oral temperature is 98.5. And, you know, we know that number is, right, 98.6, everybody's normal temperature. It's not. The normal temperature of a human being measured orally is uh, 97.5. So I don't know if that blew you away, blew me away when... Uh, we took all of our data, we uh, mixed it together, and we, and we did the statistics, and we can tell how old people are using some AI. And uh, so we can see this, this uh, curve as you get older, your normal temperature is colder. So then uh, 99.5 is uh, the best number we can use for fever for a normal adult under 50. And uh, we see 99.2 as people get a little bit older, you know, past that uh, 50 years uh, old. And that's what happened at the outbreak that we saw. Uh, I'm trying to think of a couple of other things. There's nothing. Uh, uh, oh, and then ultimately, and I, I think uh, you said this, Paul, uh, your normal temperature Maybe you mentioned this, Carl, your normal temperature really tells you where your fever is. And so if your normal temperature uh, is 97.5, just add one and a half degree Fahrenheit, and you're at 99. That's where your fever is. So, uh, and that doesn't matter what age you're at. This is just your metabolism. And the more, uh, more you exercise, your metabolism tends, not immediately after exercise, but uh, it tends to uh, have a lower temperature. You know, you get all these wonderful benefits. So one of them is lower temperature from, uh, from endurance exercise. So, Rick, I want to kind of transition a little bit because I feel like we would be doing you a disservice if we didn't talk about the, the business side of things as well. So the first thing I kind of want to get into is what the process was like of you being able to build Wello and then what does it look like being able to scale the business in terms of getting, you know, monetization for 
the product that you guys are putting within the, the healthcare sector? Well, um, first let me mention that while we're a medical device, FDA cleared class two, which means we're a real thermometer and that's not easy to get, you know, unless it's electronic and the old mercury shakedowns and things like that. That's, uh, I don't even think you need FDA uh, approval. You just need to, uh, so anyways, starting the business, uh, it grew out of another business, which is a web portal and uh, wireless sensors. We used to track people's locations throughout hospitals and healthcare. And we did that with Nurse Call. And I mentioned Bill Gates because he wanted sort of a uh, comfort system in his uh, home. We did it in semiconductor. So we wind up in a hospital show even after all the nurse call stuff. And they said, you know, we're having a hospital acquired infection problem. And so, um, you know, samples will, and it's kind of involved, but, you know, their samples will be labile or, uh, or, or ruined by a change in temperature. Chemotherapies are never tested above and below certain temperatures. So they have to hold them there because obviously they don't always work. And they have to know if it's been abused or not. Vaccines, you know, now we're hearing about super cold vaccines, not just dry ice, but, you know, minus 70 degrees C. So, uh, so the business grew out of, uh, out of, uh, safety concerns, safety over in, uh, nurse call, safety in, uh, temperature of, uh, samples of vials of where food is, uh, stored and kept in their uh, kitchen area. You know, the last thing you want in a hospital is another illness, and foodborne illness is uh, one of those. And it happens. And there, these, you know, hospitals are buying into software for concierge and, you know, uh, just, you know, room service, basically. You know, they're, they're, they're taking pride. They have chefs and all this stuff, but they want to make sure there's no food safety issues. And uh, I'm not sure how, how chefs address this these days. But uh, it's uh, it's very important to the hospitals to make sure that's covered. So anyway, uh, we built that company, and we were in uh, almost a thousand hospitals throughout the country. And when we're in a hospital, uh, we set up a network, and and it's all over the hospital. And then you know we had a portal since 1999 when even uh, Netscape was around, if you remember that. And uh, so we were able to serve up data then. And then as we got into the hospital-acquired infection area, we realized that it was being spread by these super spreaders. And we knew then that they were uh, people who were contagious, who went around spreading the stuff. So we uh, looked for everything we could. We did, uh, we had a wireless urine tester uh, because urine has, you know, the, the core temperature, uh, you know, and can hold it for seconds. And, have one that mounts on the toilet, you know, for uh, women. And we didn't even try to do that, but we just wanted to uh, see how that worked. And it, it did work, but, you know, there's some other concerns, human concerns, and it was not that important to determine temperature at the time. And we had a wrist bracelet uh, for that. So we, we tilted at this, uh, at this problem in many different ways, but we always knew that uh, to be able to get body temperatures, to be able to detect contagiousness. We just didn't realize how far away contagiousness was, this is a good thing, from normal temperature. 
it's not like on the edge. Uh, it's really about one and a half standard deviations away from uh, your normal temperature. So we patented uh, these uh, these areas with infrared testing uh, for using the Canthus and, uh, and for knowing everybody's temperature beforehand using artificial intelligence or we have we accept barcodes and, and RFIDs. So with that, we made money off selling the brand to a company that specialized in the same thing that we were doing. We were being, uh, and this is probably a business lesson, uh, we were very annoying to them. And, uh, you know, we would, we were taking business down. We didn't know why. We hadn't studied uh, pricing. We thought we were uh, expensive, uh, which we didn't mind. We, we were certainly making a good profit off of it. But then it turned out we were really the uh, budget brand as we got to know the other companies. So they wanted to, they were actually were willing to pay like we were a premium brand, despite the fact that, uh, because, you know, we were taking business from them. So, uh, and they were, they were about twice as much as us. So we would enter a hospital and uh, $10,000 for doing like a room, a pharmacy, or in some famous places like NIH and, uh, uh, and some uh, uh, famous hospitals. But anyway, uh, the 5,000, 10,000 turned into another you know, place, a kitchen, and then it was 20,000, 50,000, 100,000, and it would get to be about 200,000. So there were repetitive sales, uh, all network, there were wireless networks. You know, I'm, uh, I'm a geek by background, so, uh, you know, I could direct and drive some of this stuff. I knew when, you know, stuff worked and stuff didn't. And so we lifted ourselves up, took the brand, uh, delivered it to this other company, changed our name from Freshlock to Wellow, and took what we had in R&D that we had helped with the Ebola scare. You know, in Dallas, uh, Dallas, Texas, Ebola visited us, a gentleman from uh, Liberia. He was a FedEx employee or something, and he traveled here. Uh, and, you know, he, he didn't know he had Ebola. I think he had helped a pregnant woman. I mean, he was a very, uh, uh, very uh, decent man. Anyway, he winds up checking into a hospital. And so the whole story about Ebola is just this one man, these two nurses, and how that spread, uh, which, by the way, was low moisture days the day it spread. So all this started to come together. Uh, and uh, then when we sold the brand, we took all the money. You know, we didn't cash out a penny. And uh, I mean, it was seven figures, uh, multiple seven figures, and we put it into Wello. Uh, as we built that, we were not getting the sales that we wanted. And uh, as we started to turn up, uh, that was nice. And all of a sudden, and I built a year's worth of inventory, and all of a sudden, COVID hit. And in February, it was gone in one week, all of our inventory for the year. That's so totally crazy. crazy. That is so crazy. But, um, but so I, the business, the, but the business problem, real quick, was how do I replace that inventory? I mean, we were dead from selling all that inventory. Right. So, uh, so we just lucked out and started talking to our suppliers. Uh, a couple in particular, we had some sole sources in there, and one of the suppliers, they uh, took all their customers. It was a semiconductor company. And they wrote to all their customers that, you know, we're going to support the movement to eradicating COVID. 
and they blessed us where they said we had six to nine month lead time so we could not sell anything for six to nine months and they blessed us with all the inventory that they could and uh, taking that from some of the other applications that were uh, uh, not important. Some of them were very important. So we and the, uh, what do you call it, the intubators, the respirators, those, uh, anyway, those people used the same sensor as we did. And uh, so they were supporting us and them. And so we were blessed with this, uh, uh, with this ability to be able to sell into this. We never raised our prices. Uh, we caught a sales uh, distributor gouging. We cut them off, and then we cut off our entire reseller program too. Um, anyway, so that that was my the end of my story. No, I love that. I love that, um, especially because you mentioned something I don't think we've ever asked a guest before. Um, but if you know people have read, they might know this. But I've heard the process of selling a company has to be like one of the most taxing things was this a case for y'all um where you know selling selling it over to this new one and then starting the new one that's the first question i want to ask um well let me start with that you know what was that process like selling that over to somebody else okay so we we've had experience selling stuff and we generally don't sell the company the mothership so we sell brands we sell licenses um and so, so I guess we we had a little experience that I probably could tell somebody in you know 15 minutes. Uh, you know, I could debrief on that, so it's not anything you know deep or uh, mysterious. Uh, so when you do uh, when you do that, you get all this benefit. You get a little bit of your goodwill. You preserve your goodwill. You hopefully have something in R and D that you're gonna. Uh, either spend on or I guess you're going to cash out and go home. So that that uh, experience for us is not all that difficult. So what we did is we get uh, somebody called an investment banker, and it's not you know Goldman Sachs. It's uh, usually you know some MBA, and uh, in this case it was a guy from Wharton. So the Wharton guy, you know he uh, all the Wharton guys know the Wharton guys. Those guys. Gosh. And, I mean, 20 years older, you know, 10 years younger, they're just a, 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 a cabal. So um, <clears throat> talked it up. Nothing happened within that network. But then uh, this investment banker type, he sent out letters uh, and people got very interested uh, in the space that we were in for uh, Freshlock. And that was the wireless sensor company. So uh, along, so we really got, you know, it, it pays to get bids. And the process is a little strange. You know, they don't tell you who it is. If you, they're starting to sell, they wait till they get non-disclosures. So there's about a four-step process. The one thing you can't do is quickly. You know, if you want to talk about an arduous process, it's really, you know, when you got to do it, you can't do it. You got to, you know, prepare and you got to have a lot of patience. And you got to keep the business running. You know, kind of like doing that at the same time. So that that's that's the hard part that you're probably referring to, is uh, keeping the business going. And then you know they can't wait. If if you're in the process, they can't wait. It feels like for you to you know falter or you know, miss a quarter or miss a month or something like that. 
and they want to ask you know specifically about it before they close. Oh, and the other thing is, is there is no close. Uh, that's there is no uh, way to uh, for them to make an offer that is uh, you know not cancelable. So that the minute that you do the transaction, sign the paper, that's when it's effective. And so nobody gives you an offer that uh, they can't cancel. So you know you, you you get butterflies all the way up to the closing table, and then you don't tell your company necessarily internally because it's it's disruptive. You know people. You know, they, they have a lot of questions, you know, what's what's going to happen to me? And, you, you know, you make sure you position it to the other company that, you know, you care about your employees, you want them retained. And so, you know, once you work that out, so you go off in a, in a separate room. So this is kind of the weird stuff and the, uh, the somewhat uh, trying stuff you're talking about. And uh, to ask my second question, you know, in that in that realm, when it comes just to like, if somebody has you know the willpower to go out there and do what you're doing what would you say in general you don't have to give us the trade secrets but what would you say would be like the startup cost of the amount of capital somebody would have to have um now in your case you know you did have it from the transition of the first company that helps you with the next one right but what kind of capital does somebody need to amass do they go to a vc and find that kind of funding um, do they go and get like a gigantic loan from some, some financial institution? What do you suggest uh, for somebody to be thinking about if this is what they want to do? Uh, you know, it, it'd be nice if there was one method, you know, like you talk about venture capitalists. So we had a venture capitalist and an institutional company. Uh, one of those companies was Echolab. Uh, you probably heard of them. They, uh, they call it soap as a service. You'll see them everywhere from McDonald's, you know, and the, the squeeze out stuff and in hospitals. So it's E-C-O-L-A-B. And so they came in as an institutional partner and uh, and then the venture capitalists came in. So sort of, you know, they sort of magnetized and, uh, and built this thing. And it's very scary because if it wasn't for the decency of this venture capitalist, you know, it could have, the whole thing could have ended and, you know, 2003, right after 9-11, everybody suffered. And uh, Ecolab suffered. Venture capitalists started seeing their investments go down from that. And uh, so I, I guess at every stage, uh, there, was some, uh, there was a lot of luck there. The amount of money that started this was about $150,000. And where that still seems like a lot of money to me, um, you know, it's we scared it up you know, various different ways. And we were always, and by the way, this is 1993. So we were always in this precarious situation, uh, you know, transitioning from one thing to another, selling licenses. Uh, it was it was just like a one-man band, although, you know, there were a few of us doing it at different times. Partners would come in. We'd uh, try to get that going. Partners would leave because... Uh, you know, it didn't pan out or whatever. So it's, we've been skipping along all this time, uh, I'd say surviving till we got to this moment. Um, and, you know, we were looking for the big one. And so now, oh, and I, I do have shareholders. I have shareholders in a company that uh, is a shareholder in this company. And so, you know, we sort of encapsulated that so we didn't have to maintain very much. Their friends, their family, People put in $5,000. Uh, a couple of friends surprised me with a $20,000 check. 
uh, you know, that was back in 93. Um, uh, you know, you just you don't think you deserve it almost. Like, you know, you want to work hard to, uh, uh, to try to, to, try to do, do it. But, you know, these things do not uh, all succeed. So it's, it's not assured, you know, when you do that kind of thing, you just, you know, you just have to uh, endure and keep enduring and also know when you're, when you're done. And I, I've been done about two or three times and, you know, pulled out, but by the grace of God and, and, uh, and some luck. So I, I wish I had a, a clear answer for how to get it done or how much. Hey, people now on the net, I mean, they get by with, you know, $5,000, $10,000 here and there and, you know, can build something. But then, you know, I did a website that cost us, I mean, I used to do websites for $1,500 crowdsourced or whatever, but this one cost, you know, it's not complicated or anything. It's just beautiful graphics and, you know, something I I was never really uh, spending much on, but it was probably six figures. It was upwards of $100,000. And uh, and it looked like it, but that's not always what sells. I mean, you know, the product uh, will sell. Uh, it should sell. Man, Rick, this has been super informative. I can't even begin to <laughs> explain the amount of knowledge you dropped on us that we did not know before. So um, first off, let me say thank you so much for making the time to come on and talk to us. We really appreciate it. We know you have a very busy schedule. so. It's greatly appreciated for any of our listeners that are listening to this and they're interested in getting in contact with you or interested in, you know, just any type of information that they can be linked to you with. What would be some contact information or any social media information that you would want to leave? Well, the simplest simplest way is welloinc.com. So wello, hello. Uh, Wello inc one word.com and there we have a contact page you know i get uh, i go through all of it as well as a couple of others so you know we, we'll be on that uh, quickly my email uh, is harder to remember it's rick but it's not r-i-c-k it's r-i-k and dot heller um, and if you just google me usually i'll come up as of late you know with some of the some of this sort of disease fame that we've required here. So uh, we invite uh, all discussions. And there's a lot of stuff we don't even show on the web that we're glad to share. Uh, some dynamic maps that'll tell uh, how um, how spread is in, uh, in Michigan, how spread is in Florida and why it's different. And it'll even give you a red, yellow, and a green uh, updated every hour uh, throughout the world. So, you know, there's things like that we don't even monetize. Just get away. Uh, Invite anybody who wants to to call. And uh, speaking of inviting people to the call, I want to invite people to text us in our community to the listeners. Those of you on YouTube land, wherever you're listening to this episode or watching, uh, just want to remind you, you can join us um, by texting us at 321-384-6275. Again, that's 321-384. Three eight four six two seven five. If you want to get a T-shirt, I have the white one. Carl has a black one as well. We do have a great one, gray one. We can customize it with the name. You know, you know, we take care of y'all. Um, but also, just want to let you guys know if you want to get in on the 
um, know-how. There's a worksheet that goes with every single episode we drop each week so that you can be able to learn and apply and go out there and get it. So make sure to text us at 321-384-6275 to be the best. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for that, Paul. Rake, once again, thank you so much. We appreciate you. To all our lovely listeners, thank you guys for tuning in. If you got some value from this episode, make sure you share it out. If this is your first time listening, subscribe. Leave us a five-star review. We would greatly appreciate it. But until next time, peace. Many blessings. Thank you for listening to another episode of Off the Clock. Don't be shy to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. See you next episode.